Hola, Maribel. How are you? Hola, Liz. I'm doing great, and I'm so glad to be back with another episode and excited about the topic that we're going to be hitting on today. Before we get started, we actually have some company with us. Joining us on this conversation is our producer, Jackie. Welcome, Jackie. Hi, thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. I am particularly excited because you've been researching and diving into a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, and that is mezcal. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I've been working on this podcast called The Nectar Corridor, and it is a bilingual podcast all about mezcal production in Mexico. And it has been super eye-opening for so many reasons, not only because I learned that mezcal isn't just a smoky tequila, it's not just an alcohol, it's really representative of a lot of Mexican history and tradition. What made you all decide to work on this podcast in both English and Spanish? We were thinking about how to best go about the conversations we were going to be having. And our host, Nikki Nakazawa, has a lot of ties to the mezcaleros and the families. And most of them speak Spanish. And we realized that we really wanted to hear directly from them, have their voices be heard. Because so often in industries like this, you know, the makers get lost in the face of big business and commercialization. So it kind of just made sense. I gotta tell you that as a proud Mexicana, it really makes me happy to see that you have been diving really deep into it and not just exploring the, the research and the history behind the drink of mezcal, but also the stories, like you mentioned, the people behind mezcal. And that is so fascinating to me. Yeah, definitely. It was such a great experience. And one of the things that I was most excited about was actually the name, The Nectar Corridor. So in English, this podcast is called The Nectar Corridor. In Spanish, it's called El Corredor del Nectar. And I did not come up with that. That was our host, Nikki's idea. And she explained to me that there is something called The Nectar Corridor, which refers to this migratory route that nectar feeding bats take from the American Southwest to Southern Mexico. And along the way, when they fly, they drink from the agave plants, which is what mezcal is made from. And then all the pollen gets stuck to their bodies as they fly. And they travel like hundreds of miles a day, pollinating the land beneath them. And all this is to say that I learned that Essentially, if there were no bats, there would be no agaves. And if there were no agaves, there would be no bats. And this is like a massive thing to wow. think about in terms of, yeah, the ecosystem and the importance of what that means for like the larger landscape. Sounds like we have so much to learn, Jackie. So let's get right into it. And now our conversation with the host of the Nectar Corridor, Nikki Nakazawa. I had my first sip of mezcal in 2005 when I was a student. And at that time, mezcal was dirt cheap. And I, yeah, I didn't know, <laughs> didn't know much about it. And I wasn't really a big drinker. So just was like, oh, this is interesting. Did you shoot it or did you <clears throat> sip it that first time? Oh, I don't remember, honestly. Um, <laughs> you probably shot yeah, it Yeah, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But uh, likely, <laughs> if everybody else was, <laughs> I probably did too. I feel like that took me a long time to actually learn how to drink tequila, I was just doing what everybody else was doing and shooting it. But then I realized that the best way to drink it is to sip it. Mm -hmm. And now it's actually like an, an enjoyment for me. It's not like, you know, a lot of people just shoot it. And I feel like they do the same thing with mezcal sometimes. 
Yes, this is true. I often have to stop people and try not to be rude while doing it. I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) I just want you to appreciate it. (laughs) The obvious connection here, right? Tequila and mezcal. Those of us who, who grew up on this side and obviously were introduced to tequila maybe in our younger years, maybe not in the most refined way, we still commit the error, which I know I'm definitely guilty of, of saying, oh, mezcal is just smoky tequila or it's just the little cousin. Mm-hmm. Please, please instruct us as to why this is not the case. Mm-hmm. And what are those real differences between tequila and mezcal and, and just the intricacies of, of how this special drink is made? For sure. So tequila started as a mezcal, and now they are not as related as they once were. But tequila is a spirit distilled from agave, but from one specific type of agave. And this agave in the world of tequila has been named tequilana. There are over 200 species of agave in the world. 80 or 75% of that biodiversity is concentrated in Mexico. So um, mezcal refers to every other spirit distilled from all the other types of agave. And the word mezcal comes from two Nahuatl words, metal, which means maguey, agave, and iscali, which is roasted. Is that what makes it smoky? Well, not all mezcal is smoky. And I think that it's important that folks know that the agave is roasted, it's not smoked. So what conducts the heat is not wood, actually, it's stones. And the stones take about five to six hours to heat up. And by the time that they're heated, all of that wood has burned down into coals. And then there's usually some type of padding that's placed over the stones to create a barrier between the piñas, the hearts of the maguey, and the stones. The smoky thing, you know, the smoke may be a stylistic thing. It may be because you let air into the oven. It may be because the fibers in the distillation were burning. But quality mezcal, I don't think that the first thing out of your mouth should be smoky. This idea has penetrated people's vocabularies and minds. And I think that sometimes people just think a flavor and then they taste it. And then the first thing is like, oh, it's smoky. I'm like, well, it maybe that's not really <laughs> like, is that happening in your mind or is that happening in your mouth? Oh, that sounds so lovely. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like something that you have to just enjoy slowly, you know, something that you yeah. have to take your time with. I was thinking about that too when you were explaining the process. It's such an artisanal labor of love to make mezcal. And I it imagine is. that this has been being done for hundreds of years. Can you tell us more of how mezcal started and how long have been pe- have people been making it? The, the theory is that there was a trade route between the Philippines and Acapulco for 250 years. This was also a period before the system of castas and people trying to really pick out your racial identity. So people coming through were called like Chinos, mm-hmm. Indios, you know, it was kind of like we don't really know. Some were Indian, Chinese, Filipino 
upwards of 30,000 people came through this trade route. And so there were the Filipinos who apparently taught folks how to distill. So the earliest stills are called Filipino stills. There's a lot of rich history and culture behind mezcal and the process. I'm always curious to, to understand what was the process behind making this mezcal more world-recognized? Because it used to be known, I feel like, as a lesser drink, right? Mm-hmm. Mezcal has been being made in different parts of the countries for hundreds of years and has been central to people's celebrations. And then really, when you have these kind of commercial routes established, late 90s, early 2000s, that's when we start to have the whispers of the you know, mezcal boom. However, up to this day, we continue to live under a period of high regulation. And so I would say that to this day, most of the mezcal that's produced is, is produced without any permits. And working with alcohol in Mexico is extremely complex. A lot of folks experienced policing of their palenques, of their mezcal production up until the 1980s. So it wasn't permitted for them to produce spirits. It was dangerous. And there was no support. Mezcal is truly a drink of resistance. Nikki, what about the environmental resistance, if any? You talked about the, the 2000s really bringing on the mezcal boom. And uh, it sounds like mezcaleros have gotten more visibility and, and have been able to fight for some of their rights. But what about environmentally and for the land and for the ecosystem where mezcal is, is made? Have you seen any negative repercussions since the boom? Or, or is there also positive sustainability of mezcal creation since it became so much more popular? I think that there's certainly uh, negative repercussions to the increasing popularity of mezcal. There's no, you know, zero impact anything. There are repercussions in the environment. There's people who are clearing forests, clearing fields, and planting espadín in monoculture, which degrades the topsoil and is devastating for the water table in a lot of cases. So it's really under the purview, you know, of each producer and landowner to take care of the land as they see fit. I think that in general, when the folks who have been taking care of land generation after generation are the owners of their land, they tend to take better care of it. So there's certainly efforts by individual producers to work, quote unquote, responsibly, co-planting, engaging in reforestation efforts every rainy season. But it's really not unified and there's, it's very difficult to enforce rules here. And what about us as consumers, Nikki? Us as individuals here who want to consume mezcal ethically and, and conserve and preserve the sanctity really of, of the land and how this is made. What do you recommend we do to make sure that we're ethically sourcing, buying and consuming mezcal here in the U.S.? I think that you can definitely get a sense of the project or the brand or the producer by looking at the bottle, like what information's on there. Do we have the name of the producer? Do we know what agaves it's made out of? And also the size of the batches. Our average batch size is around 200 liters, which is tiny. We're working with productions that are made out of a single oven. 
they're like snowflakes. They're irrepeatable. Like each bottling we have on the front label, like how many bottles are in that production. So you have maybe bottle one of 256 bottles and that's it. Like you could never have the same mezcal again. And also spend time with the mezcal. Does it smell good? Is it, you know, pleasing to you? Mezcal is being produced all over Mexico. There's a lot of different regions. There's a lot of different plants. Mm. And shop for diversity. It's not like about, oh, I only drink X brand. Because we're not brands. We're representing different traditions and different producers and family recipes. It's probably going to be expensive. (laughs) So get ready for that. It's not cheap. It's these plants take a really long time. If you want to be paying your producer or the producers are going to be earning a living wage off of this. What about clarity? How do you know if it's a good mezcal? From a sensorial perspective, I always recommend giving the mezcal a little bit of air. And so you want to pour it. You want to look at it and it should be transparent for the most part. And then you can look at the legs. You know, you can actually like turn it around in your cup and you're like, oh, look at the oils. You want to smell with both of your nostrils, but don't spend too much time because it's high in alcohol. You don't want to like chill too <laughs> long above it because you might like burn. And then you want to take a little sip and salivate. And then you can take another little sip and then you're going to perceive a bit more like feel how it feels in your throat and your chest. Spend some time thinking about what does it remind you of? Do you have a memory associated with it? And yeah, it should awaken some type of feeling or emotion. I think that it's a way of also understanding what you like. It's a tool for understanding yourself, for engaging with others, for understanding the qualities of a plant or a place. I just hope that people will approach it with curiosity and with a beginner's mind and that, yeah, take it as like a journey and as a learning, as a learning lesson. You can subscribe to the Pulsa Pod wherever you get your podcast. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend to give us a listen. Have questions or story ideas to send our way? Send us an email to info at projectpulso.org. This episode was produced by Jackie Nowak, editing by Charlie Garcia, music by Julian Blackmore. Hey, Pulso fam. I want to tell you all about Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta podcast about language, culture, and communication. Have you ever wondered what your cat is trying to tell you? Or how Disney Pixar writers craft stories that resonate across numerous languages? Atlas Lingue host Luis Lopez explores these topics and so much more. It's a show about the confusing, wonderful, and weird world of language, and this season, they're diving deep into the language of culture online. They're interviewing content creators from different countries who document their daily lives and cultural backgrounds on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. New episodes air every other Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch all the interviews on their YouTube channel at 80 Podcasts.